welcome into Priced Out the Podcast. I'm Andrew Morgan, and I'm in here with your gracious and beautiful host, Cornelia Swartz. See, I had to throw you for a loop because you were looking so serious. So I had that, to that, throw that, some good words out there. That was a loop and a half. I went all the way around the room on that one. We don't have to keep it. You know, we don't have to keep it. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. We should make that the intro every time. Gracious and beautiful. <laughs> Mostly just beautiful, I think, yeah. is um no. Yeah. All right. So today we've got a really uh we've got a really great show from a uh, QA session you did at UMass, correct? Yeah, UMass Boston. We do these Q and A's all the time for universities and professional development groups, uh, and other screenings that happen in other parts of the country where I just kind of Skype in for a Q&A after the show, uh, like, for example, places like UMass, but also in Nashville and Atlanta, um, places where they hear about the film just from word of mouth, and uh, they come to us and ask to either do a screening or purchase a DVD, and I, I just talk to the group afterwards. So this was um, a school that actually my daughter attends, and so she was in the audience, um, and we spoke with a housing activist who, well, she's not an activist, she works at a community development corporation that's doing work in Boston. She's got a lot of expertise. So you're going to hear from myself, uh, from the professor, uh, Tracy Beard, who is in the uh, graduate program there in the School of Equity and Inclusion. And we're just going to be talking about the issues in Boston. All right, so let's go ahead and get into it. So we, we went ahead and kind of uh, started a little bit of the discussion um, about the film and kind of what's happening um, in and around Boston uh, concerning um, gentrification. And uh, we're recording this as well. So just so you know, like the whole conversation is being uh, recorded um, for, for that. But um, I wanted to kind of ask you a little bit about Kind of your um, kind of your process. So, like in the film, like you you not only share the stories of like the story of Nikki, uh, but you also shared your uh, personal story of displacement and kind of how uh, has your personal experience experiences with displacement kind of shaped your views about gentrification since the first film that you that you filmed? Has there been any changes, or were there any changes uh, according to well, you know, you know, in the film, we try to make a distinction between housing as an issue or housing displacement, economic displacement, and cultural displacement. And so, you know, my experiences with, you know, being evicted um, or displaced or being priced out mostly from, from other cities that I've lived in and couldn't afford to stay in, um, you know, I was in Portland because it was the most affordable place that I that I could be in um, but you know though those are I was never in any kind of real threat though I mean I'd been displaced but um, I never felt like I was going to be homeless or um, that I was going to be in a situation where I was going to be very very unstable or um, that I, I just wouldn't be able to pay for food or have to skip meals um, so, so my experiences were more just about that the housing market can be rough, but it, it wasn't an existential threat. Uh, and, you know, just working on the documentary is just an example of how I, I, I need to not lump myself in the same category as people who are displaced or people who have 
serious housing insecurity or people who experience, you know, cultural displacement. So if anything, it, it just made it clear to me that I was, I was not in the same category and that, you know, my, my problems were not big problems compared to others. And I think you touched on something that was re that's really important, and Lisa, you can jump in too um, with this particular question. But um, in a recent interview with NPR, uh, Matthew Desmond, the Pulitzer Prize uh, author of Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City, um, he was quoted as saying, "Is eviction isn't just a condition of poverty, it is a cause of poverty. So if you can kind of talk about, um, and I think you touched on it a little bit, how displacement it causes poverty um, for residents. Yeah, well, I mean, the cost of moving and, or, or being moved is tremendous. Uh, you know, in Evicted, there's, um, it's a tremendous book, um, but there, there's a number of examples of how just being in the cycle of whether that's eviction, uh, relocation, um, or in the criminal justice system, even for a minor offense, you know, the, the, the churn through those, through those systems costs a great deal and creates a great deal of instability in and of itself, you know. Uh, so you got to pay first and last month rent. You got to pay moving fees. You got to, you know, take off from work to find a place to live. Um, then you have new transportation costs. Um, your family, you, you know, you might try to keep your kid in the old, in the, the former school so that they're stable, um, which creates new time constraints. Um, so every time you move, you know, that all those costs and all those burdens start, start up again. And if you're living from paycheck to paycheck, um, it can quickly force you into debt. It can force you to be behind in your bills. If you're, you know, late enough on one bill, um, that could ding your credit, um, or, you know, if you have uh, other assets that you can get leaned on. Um, and so, so these are the things that when you're just barely above water can force you down um, and for good sometimes. And if you're in the criminal justice system, you know, I've, I mean, I've done reporting on people who owed 120 bucks to Washington County, Oregon, and they wind up doing two years in jail um, because it sets off a chain of events, triggers probation, or puts them in debt, um, and and it just it just sends you down down the river for a long time. Yeah, yeah. And so to add on to that, there are um, so individual health out, um, negative health uh, outcomes that both moms and children experience because of repeated forced moves. So things like asthma, for example. You wouldn't think about that, but if you're if you're if you're going from poor you know bad building condition to bad building condition, you're going from mold to maybe lead to you know whatever else. I mean, if I if if I had more time, I'd show you pictures of some of the buildings of, of our of our, our members. Big 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 hole in the ceiling where you can see the sky. I mean, people are living in conditions like that, like in the winter time, right? and still getting rental increases. I mean, it's unfathomable. So, so you've got these negative individual level health outcomes, but then if you, you look at, the, at the, 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 the social and economic cost to a neighborhood, and you know, Desmond talks about this in his book as well, what happens when, when, when stable you know, um, social networks leave the block, right? So, so all of the 
you know, internal, not policing, but, but, but intern, the internal life of a neighborhood gets disrupted and then you, you don't have the folks who are, who are keeping the peace. You don't have the person on the, the elder on the block, you know, keeping an eye on that one and that one. You don't have this woman who's watching these kids because this one has to go to work, right? So, so you have this neighborhood instability and then you have the economic costs of what happened, you know, how are you going to get people who now live two towns over but still have their, still have to go to school or their healthcare provider or their job? So their so they're, they're, so cities are thinking about, about, you know, transportation and health in regional ways because, because their customers are literally outside of the city, the city limits. Not to mention what happens to a city when you lose afford housing that was previously affordable, which is like the thing that I keep, you know, like I'm the broken record, but bad things happen to a city when you lose your affordable housing, private market and subsidized. Yeah. And I think you also talked about, and you, you're touching on a, on a lot of like really important issues as far as like the consequences, not only um, personally for residents, but as a community and, and as a city um, that Absolutely. happened with displacement. Um, and I think the work that you um, are doing at City Life, you know, as an activist and advocacy group around anti-displacement, can you kind of talk about uh, some of those uh, things that are happening? Um, and I'm gonna start with you, Cornelius, first. Now, what are those movements or um, activist movements that are happening in Portland um, that are that people are kind of getting involved in? And I'm particularly interested in kind of arts at activist, you know, movements. Uh, so if there are any, you know, and so there's this pushback between, you know, artists and coming into uh, communities because they are seen as the first wave or the first gentrifiers that come into neighborhoods or they're often sometimes called the creative class. Um, and so uh, communities in LA, like Boyle Heights are actively, you know, pushing against, you know, artists and this creative class coming in, um, in uh, a form of what they call art washing. Um, so can you kind of talk about if that is happening in Portland or has that happened in you know, kind of what is the activist or anti-displacement, anti-gentrification activist movement happening there? Yeah, um, you know, um, you know, the, you know, I think the creative class comes in um, like in the last 15 years, but I, I think even the longer sort of history of gentrification, it's, it's not really rooted um, in, in the initial stages or not necessarily rooted in creative class, but more in sort of Bohemians, um, meaning like really like intellectuals who are either you know living on the fringes or in an alternative sort of social social space uh, because they they might be queer uh, they might deliberately want to live on the on the edge of society they've rejected mainstream society these types of Bohemians who are artists um, historic preservationists you know middle class folks who want to fix up an old Victorian house. Um, and then people who are kind of like hermits, like kind of shut-ins and people who don't want to live in mainstream society. And, and those types of people really characterize the first waves of gentrification that we see throughout America, you know, starting in the 1960s. 
um, when um, you know Greenwich Village uh, and uh, Beacon Hill. Beacon Hill was really the first gentrified community in America outside of Charleston, South Carolina, and those were largely Harvard-educated um, uh, upper-middle-class folks who went in there to preserve uh, and restore old housing. So then, creative class comes in later when there's really enough sort of graphic designers and web developers out there who made enough money uh, that they could have a real economic impact. And, and that really doesn't happen until the last 10, 10, 15 years, I, I would say. I, don't, I haven't studied it entirely, but even the term creative class is relatively new. Um, so, so Portland and other cities, but Portland was really early on in trying to re- brand itself as you know the playground for the creative class the, the great opportunity for the creative class and so so while we had gentrification in albina driven by these types of people of which i was one of them um it's really when the creative class sort of lands in portland with the millennials come of age with money and skills that can be ported and imported and exported on the internet rather they don't have to be in any one particular location where they can bring their connections in from cities like Boston, New York, Los Angeles, and say, hey, I've got clients in Boston and I can just live in Portland for half the price. Um, might as well just do that. I can do a graphic design job from anywhere. Um, so these people, you know, sort of are really driving uh, amongst other groups, you know, baby boomers retiring uh, and other people who have legitimate business here because there's a company here that pays them. Um, these are the people who really drive in the housing crisis around the city. The resistance movement from that. So, so has there been a backlash against artists? Not really. Um, you know, it, it, it wasn't gentrified in the sort of the classic like Soho, New York, um, you know, art galleries coming in and, and really kind of disrupting an area very quickly. Um, there were art galleries in some neighborhoods in the black community, but the change was slow, you know, it was that first wave of gentrification and the art galleries were not like high powered art galleries. Nobody was buying a hundred thousand dollar, you know, you know, pickaxe or something out of these types of galleries in Portland. It's small beans here. Um, so, so there wasn't a backlash against, against art washing. Uh, and I haven't seen any here, but um, the resistance movement is, is, is very healthy and it is in the streets it is, you know, around people who are, you know, radical critiques of capital. Um, and it is, it is propelling new leadership to city council. You know, one of our new city councilors um, came in riding a wave of, of street theater, public protest, civil disobedience. She was in the streets with folks and, and she has passed legislation that have probably moved the needle on housing prices and dislocation and displacement more than any single thing that's happened in, in the city in the last 15 years. And, and Portland is leading the way, not, not just locally, but is part of the National Homes for All uh, movement that Right to the City is connected to, which is, uh, which is using a translocal strategy. So, so connecting with, with these, these fiery grassroots base building um, organizations where they are, um, you know, working on both local policy, 
um, state policy and, and then some like sub-regional, you know, sub-state policies, you know, linking all of these disparate um, struggles together into a coordinated national campaign. Um, that, and so, so places like Boston is able to draw a lot of inspiration from Tennessee, for example, or Portland, or Rochester, which, is, which has a really incredible rent strike going on right now. Um, against a slum, a kind of a notorious slum landlord. So, so it's really exciting to, to, to see, you know, some of, the, some of that come through in the, in the film. You know, I, I have a question. I'm wondering if you can say more, Cornelius, about your relationship with, with the, the tenant or the, the tenant movement that we saw in the film. Well, I mean, I, I know the leaders, um, you know, my, my position is, as a journalist so you know I, I talk and dialogue with them um um that some of them are were interviewed for the film and we didn't wind up you know using any as, as characters but um you know i'm i'm, I'm on good terms with them uh, but yeah. i i don't consider myself an activist yeah yeah awesome thank you and i think um i think that's really interesting how you in this film use your your positionality to kind of talk about these issues. And then you've been very transparent about like where your position is um, as, you know, a person who is, I think in, in the film you say, you know, hi, I'm a gentrifier. Um, but then also using that positionality um, and using that to kind of work to fight for or bring light to these issues. So. You know, you may not necessarily, in my opinion, my humble opinion, you may not necessarily be an activist in a, in a traditional sense of the word of being in the street, but uh, I would argue that the work that you're doing is, is on, that, on, that, on that strata of being kind of an, at, at least advocating, if not, you know, if activist is a too strong of a term. Um, and I know we're kind of getting kind of late towards the, the end of the evening here. Um, and so I'm going to kind of open up. Do you, does anyone here have any questions for the filmmaker, like for Cornelius? I just had a question actually for both Cornelius and Lisa. Um, Cornelius, in the film, you talk about the impact that the right to return, um, was it a bill or an ordinance, had on um, kind of bringing the, the people who had been displaced back to Portland and I'm curious if you can talk a little bit more about that. And then Lisa, I'm really curious to know if something like that has been used in Boston or could be used in a similar way in Boston. Yeah, um, you know, the, the reference to it in the film is really just that, that, they, uh, that the city has adopted a policy of right to return, which uh, I do think is modeled on, on one in New York City. Um, and the policy is just that people who formerly lived in the neighborhood and they have a criteria for determining that sort of get in line first for housing assistance programs. Now that's fully three years ago or two and a half years ago that they, they first announced that. And the mayor of Portland just last week blasted this program for being almost completely ineffectual. Um, and, and there's, there's a number of reasons for that. One is they had a homeowner assistance program that was completely out of touch 
with the market realities, meaning they were going to give you $10,000 for a down payment on a house where the average, you know, home price is 400 to $600,000. Um, so, you know, no one could take advantage of that. Um, they didn't do nearly enough outreach in order to reach people so that they even know that the program's there. They put money or prioritize money to build affordable units from the ground up, which could take, you know, it could take two to three years to get an apartment building through the pipeline in Portland, rather than using the money simply to buy apartment buildings that were already on the market. Mm -hmm. And so apartment buildings have been bought and sold, renovated. Everyone's been kicked out of them uh, in the whole time frame since this program was supposed to be in effect. Uh, and then they have a home improvement program um, where people can make, you know, repairs or fix problems with their houses. And, you know, that has probably been one that pe more people have capitalized on it, but I think only about 18 people have capitalized on that, on that program since then. So it's been woefully inadequate. Um, not to say that it's not a good idea. And I, th I think you're going to see the city double down on these efforts. Um, I certainly hope so because there's, there's a, the mayor seems to be motivated to do something about it. Yeah. Oh, thank you for the update. <laughs> so, Lisa, have you seen anything like that in Boston? Um, so, um, I, 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 first, I just want to um, say that that this reality that you're talking about, Cornelius, is um, it is is basically like the seed of it's like the crux of the argument that we have with the city, right? The city says. We have, we forced the city to, to acknowledge that we have an, both an affordable housing and a displacement crisis. So they, they say, yes, you're right, we do have that. The city's solution is to build 53,000 units, some per, small percentage of, of which will be affordable by, you know, a, a, a wide kind of, you know, range of, of affordability levels. Uh, everything from you know zero percent of area median income all the way up to one hundred and twenty percent of area median income. Okay, so so in and of itself that that's problematic. But the the strategy you know that um, to say that you're going to you're going to intervene in a displacement crisis by building new housing, which we won't see for two, three, four years down the road doesn't make sense. It just doesn't, logically, just that doesn't make sense. And, and that's all they got. And that's all they got because this is a revenue problem for them. They get money from, and this is, it's important that they get, they, they get a percentage of affordable um, money either into a, a trust fund or actual um, affordable units based on, you know, uh, when, when luxury developers or market rate developers build, um, build housing, uh, where they need some kind of zoning variance, and most housing in Boston needs some kind of zoning variance. So, you know, that's how they get their revenue. I, we get why they say that, but that logically doesn't address the problem. You need acquisition strategies, as Cornelius alluded to, which um, we fought for, and there actually is a pot of money uh, for the city to subsidize no, nonprofit developers or for-profit developers who are, are intentionally creating long-term permanently affordable housing. Um, so that this is a long-winded way of saying no. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, I would I would emphasize also that, you know, in, in my view of these things over time, there's no way you can build your way out of a housing crisis. There's no way. There's no way the taxpayer can can foot the bill. Um, there's no way to preserve, um, you know, just talk about working class communities. Um, you can't build working class housing with the free market. It's right. the free market has never built working class housing. Um, the only time it's built is when there's a massive subsidy involved. Um, the biggest housing subsidy program was for working people. It was, it's suburbia. It's, it's all of the sprawl around every city in America. Some cities are just sprawl. They have no traditional urban core like Boston, like Houston. Um, and all of that housing was built for working people at a massive subsidy. The federal government subsidized the mortgage. The federal government paid for all the freeways to allow people to access cheap land. And then industrial building techniques um, reduced the cost of producing a unit um, to very low amounts where people could actually go in and buy a house. So there is no equivalent to that for the urban working class. There's nothing even close to that amount of spending going on. Um, so really you're talking about if there's a crisis, there, you know, there has to be a legislative, even a temporary legislative fix. Um, and if it's not rent control, if it's not a ban on no cause eviction, um, then you look very carefully. I would say look very carefully at what Portland passed, which is a relocation fee that says if your tenants cannot withstand, you know, being evicted in 30 days or um, withstand a, a 10 percent or more rent increase, then you got to pay to move them. Um, and that's a way around the statewide ban. We have a statewide ban on rent control. We have a state, we have a, you know, a no cause eviction law that cannot be overturned anytime soon. And, and this law, the relocation fee is a complete work around that. And rents are cooling down. The woman that I mentioned before, who's propelled to city council by street protests and the anger over the housing crisis, her name is Chloe Udaly. And she's the renter. She's a, the first renter to be on Portland City Council in a hundred, and since they've been keeping records on who's sitting on city council. And she got a 9.99% rent increase this year. And I think you had a question. I did it. Actually, um, you all have started to answer it. I wanna thank you for um, sharing so much with us today. And my question was, and uh, Cornelius has just started to answer it between displacement and right of return, mm -hmm. right? Because if you're moving two or three towns over and having to build a life there, mm -hmm. right of return can't matter if you can't return because now you've got your kids there or you got fired and you had to find a new job and right, et cetera. And so I'm wondering what other kinds of strategies like relocation fees, um, while while dealing with the crisis and trying to end the crisis, right, the long-term goal, the, the immediate goals of what do we do when folks are displaced, so relocation fees, what other, if we were able to get, right, the no eviction, no cause evictions, right of returns, relocation fees, what other kind of structures yep. can yep. sustain that moment, and I'm, thinking in part because Boston, as we know, right, public transportation is really bad here. And so, for example, 
you know, a mother, a single parent, a single mother, right, usually women, um, with a child who gets moved to a shelter in Waltham, right, who can't afford the commuter rail to get back into Boston, which still takes a long time, now has a two and a two and a half hour commute in to get their kids into school by seven, to get to work or to get to one of the programs in order to keep you on public assistance, right? And if you're late too many times, they can kick you out. And this is the cycle that you were talking about. And so I'm wondering um, what other kinds of ways can those stop gaps, if you will, in yes. this moment. So, so I'm going to let Cornelius have the last word, um, and, and I, I, I want to highlight that that Boston and Portland, um, although we, we share obviously similarities, you know, robust tenant, you know, rights movements, etc. There, we are, we there, there are some things that we don't share. Um, it, uh, you know, the, our our housing market is is at a different place in Boston, I think, than it is at, at, in Portland. Um, you know. We're, we're with, without trying to sound too hyperbolic, I do think that Boston is, is very, like, we're on the verge of, you know, being like a place like San Francisco, where it doesn't matter if you have a housing voucher anymore. It doesn't, you, nobody with a Section 8 can afford to live in San Francisco. We don't want to get there. But we are literally in a battle for our lives, for our city, with big real estate developers and investors that have short-term interests, right? They're trying to make a quick buck now while the market is hot. You know, they've got other plans for when our market changes, like maybe in a few years. But for right now, this is a land grab. This is a building grab. This is a build, build, build while you can... What, well, you can flip and make a bunch of money. And because of that, developers and, and these corporate landlords are actually, are actually willing to, to, um, to provide very generous move-out um, sums of money to, to folks who are in struggle. We have a, a building right now where, where the, the offer started at $35,000 per household to move out. And then... And then the offer went up to $67,000 per unit to move out. So I, I, just, I just want you to, to, to see, like, a relocation subsidy is something that our developers would jump on because they just want that land. They really just want that housing. So that's not, in our opinion, that's not a, a viable solution for Boston right now, although obviously it is for a place like Portland. Um, so we say because we are in this life or death struggle, we need policies that make it so that people do not move in the first place. So, um, so, there's a, so, so there is this one example, I'll just give you one example. We're part of a coalition that has created um, um, a proposed change to Boston zoning code that would establish for the first time something called an anti-displacement zone. And, and, and a neighborhood designated as an anti-displacement zone would have enhanced tenant protections, enhanced protections um, around transportation, and also enhanced um, uh, labor and workforce protections to keep people who are, to, to keep people in neighborhoods that are at risk of displacement because of new transit or new luxury development in their neighborhoods, and it's a set of comprehensive policies 
meant to keep people there. One of those policies is actually something like a, a right to return. It's a, if you are in danger of being displaced and there's new affordable housing being created right now in your neighborhood, then you would have preference uh, to be able to, to go into that new affordable housing. That's one of many provisions. That's the first time something like that has ever been attempted in Boston because if you don't do it right, it could run afoul of, of fair housing law, actually. Um, but we figured out how to do it, and it's, it's one of, of many things that we're working with the city on right now. Yeah, that's that's interesting. We we actually do have that problem with um with the relocation fee as well as developers on some properties um, offer more money than the relocation fee would require. So it is a matter of you know with any kind of punitive thing, it's like um, you have to make sure that the the punitive fee is higher than the cost of doing business. Right. So, so it, it's a constant it's a constant moving target because nobody knows what direction this this housing crisis is going to head in um so so i, I i'm it's really interesting about the um, about the zoning thing you have inclusionary zoning in boston as well it's it's, i'm not sure it's been effective yeah it's, it's way too low the percentages are way too low yeah and, and so it's it's a matter i mean one thing is that you constantly have to readjust these policies you know our inclusionary zoning is very new but it hasn't been terribly effective um and that could be because the market conditions aren't right or because the the, the regulations aren't right. Um, so, I, so one thing is to constantly be revising these things and constantly, like there is no solution. There's just a process of, of just attacking the problem ceaselessly and uh, endlessly. Um, I think another thing that I don't know if it has been done, but does Boston have eminent domain still? Um, so not, there's currently no um, non-government entity that has eminent domain powers, but yes, the city itself does have eminent domain powers. So another thing is eminent domain for, you know, for affordable housing. I mean, I think that's kind of like one of the last cards in the, in the taxpayer or the pub, you know, public's mm. um, deck. And, um, you know, looking at there's a, a big think tank report on social housing a european model where there's a mixed where the city basically finances a mixture of of for-profit housing that also subsidizes affordable units so it's it's sort of ingrained in a business model um that hasn't been tried in the u.s and so social housing is something that you could look into and if you couple it with eminent domain um you know, it, it's about land, obviously, and it's about money. Uh, and so, it, it, you know, even regulations, uh, you know, can be worked around. So th those are those are two ideas. Thank you. I've got one final question um, that we're going to that we're going to do um, and then we'll kind of end because it's getting a little bit late. Um, and so last week was the 50th anniversary of the passage of the Fair Housing Act of 1968. Um, and so can you um, reflect quickly on the importance of this act um, and the continued fight for housing equity in the United States? Um, and then um, kind of how, you know, how does anti-displacement movements sort of fit in the vision for fair housing for today? So. 
Um, you know, the Fair Housing Act was, you know, absolutely vital, crucial in breaking up redlining, uh, a policy that the government created, but that was kept in place for, you know, generations after the Fair Housing Act, just perpetuated by the banking industry, the mortgage industry, um, and, and local municipalities, and, and just then the force of cultural momentum behind it. Um, you know, a, a country of 300 million people doesn't change on a dime. Uh, so laws aren't, you know, light switches that, that once you flip them, everything's all good. Um, and so the Fair Housing Act was a good start. It, it's been it's been diminished and watered down uh, recently. There was a, a, a good story called Pushed Out, a series by Reveal, the Center for Investigative Journalism, about the persistence of redlining, especially in the South and, and in Philadelphia, um, that the the amount of rigor that that the federal government now applies to lenders to check whether they are uh, uh, still practicing housing discrimination and lending, um, that rigor has declined uh, significantly over the generations. Uh, and so getting a federal government back into place that will scrutinize the banking industry um, is vitally important. I mean, it all comes down to elections, winning elections, and and activism and resistance are important but you have to ultimately get your hands on the levers of power at the highest level if you want to see things change in a big way um and and lastly as far as fair housing and as far as like the last question the previous question you know the, the market isn't necessarily the enemy all the time i, I think it, it is the enemy at the moment um but like the example i, I brought up with how the suburbs were financed, um, despite all the racial discrimination that were inherent to suburban suburbanization of America. It did represent kind of a joining of private industry and public subsidy in a way that that produced a lot of housing, and it, we don't have that right now in urban housing. There isn't a a a cooperation that works for working people, and and I think that we should we should make that a goal is to find that to find some sort of sweet spot between private industry getting what they want and the public getting what it needs uh, and i and i hope we can find that because that would be sustainable so so maybe you'll do a part two um because um that is a that that that, that is an entirely different panel discussion with lots and lots and lots more people. Um, I, I do I, I do want to say that, um, you know, not all markets are bad. Socialized markets are great, I think, in theory. Um, the, 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 the kind of public-private partnership that you're talking about, Cornelius, was only able to happen because, because it was racialized. There's, with, without, uh, there's there's no way that the country would have been able to lift all working class people up at, without the, that rigid racial hierarchy in place. In other words, you needed to extract the labor of certain groups of people in order to, to have enough 
both in this country and across the and across the world, right? Like white workers were based were benefiting from the spoils of of imperialism. So I mean, and this this is a larger conversation, but I I, I, I caution us to talk to to not talk about class essentialized class and race and gender are intricately intertwined. Um, otherwise, we you know, I, I and, and I think that. I think that um, doing that allows us to craft better policy. So, yeah, so a friendly disagreement there. <laughs> okay. Yes. Well, I think we can also kind of end on this friendly disagreement note. Thank you so much. And thank you for. And welcome back into Priced Out the Podcast. I'm Andrew Morgan, and of course, Cornelia Sword, you've done a really great job uh, once again. And I love this, the Q&As. Uh, tell me a little bit more about Boston. Well, you know, as we can we can see or hear from the, from the conversation, Boston really doesn't have its arms around this issue, even though it's been a really expensive city for as long as I can remember. I went to school in Boston at Boston University for two years. And there was, as a student, there was really only one place I could live, which was Alston. And at that time, it, it was expensive for just about everybody. It was still, it was a really like kind of upper middle class city at that time. There were affordable neighborhoods in Dorchester and Roxbury. And, and now that's, you know, of course, where you're seeing the gentrification hitting the hardest, as well as in the, in the kind of working class suburbs, um, which is, you know, the communities that we talked about here today. Schools love to screen uh, Priced Out as well as Northeast Passage, and, and you're preparing a DVD. So can you talk a little bit about that? That is a, a great thing to bring up because we are, in fact, about to release our educational DVD. It's um, it's a two-film DVD. You'll be able to see Priced Out and Northeast Passage on the same DVD, and there will be uh, filmmakers' commentaries that you can play for the first film, closed captions, and this is a DVD we're releasing, which is for educational institutional users really only. That next year we'll just be kind of rolling that that type of product out. And uh, so those are three-year licenses and lifetime licenses. And we also have a, a Vimeo paid unlimited viewing for one-year license, which goes for about a hundred dollars. So mostly for institutions, unless you're like the biggest priced-out fan in the world, then the streaming option is the one for you. All right. So what do we got coming up for them next on Priced Out the Podcast? So the next one is going to be a conversation between three filmmakers, myself, Sika Stanton, and Nicole McDonald, uh, talking about filmmakers covering gentrification, how you portray a community in a film. Sika Stanton, who worked on Priced Out, teamed up with... Donovan Smith, who also worked on Priced Out, and they produced a short film called The Numbers, which is about East Portland and how that area is beginning to gentrify, but it's really a kind of a meditation on just the flavor and feel of the community before it gets gentrified. It's a really lovely, lovely piece. And Nicole McDonald produced and directed a film called The Last Days of Chinatown, which is about gentrification in Detroit. We have a really interesting conversation that was moderated by... Andrew Morgan. Wow, I've, I've heard good things about him. The beautiful, beautiful Andrew Morgan. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Uh, I try. So, 
And it was you, done. You try to be beautiful? Yeah, I do every day. You're doing a so, good job. <laughs> all is, right. Is everyone thoroughly confused now? Should be. We didn't talk about the Avengers. What? <laughs> we didn't talk about talking about it. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about the Avengers. Let's we, just we, keep it rolling. You, just, we, I mean, you can put it in this one or you can put it in the next one. There's always like a little comic book com- chatter. Yeah. Let's put it in the next one. That gives okay. you guys another reason to listen because we're going to talk. We're going to have a really good discussion on the next one, moderated by myself and Cornelius, and, and we're going to have Avengers talk. Yeah, we'll talk All about right. Avengers. All right, we'll see you guys on the next Christ Out Podcast. Podcast. I'm Andrew Morgan. I'll be your host alongside Cornelius Swart. Every week I get your name a little bit better. It yeah, but by, by the end of the year you'll you'll have it all dialed in. Eh, no, I'm pretty, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'll find a way to mess it up a little bit. But everyone else gets it wrong. So why why should you be any different? Really, we should talk about Black Panther's premiering tonight, yeah. and you you have you you are going yes. to the to the the pre premiere of Black Panther. That's because, as a fan, I feel like it's necessary. It's more than just the fantasy. It, it Sometimes this is where a movie, I feel, can instill hope and make you feel like, all right, you know, I know that that's all fantasy, but for those few hours, this was a pretty cool world to see. And if it's anything like the comics, I'm very excited to see. So it, it's such a, a contrast to reality that this is one of the few times that I'm excited to be entertained and inspired and, and hopefully it can inspire one day that life will imitate art. It's a That's powerful like, vision, right? Yeah. Uh, of, of, a, of a world, the black world, a black futuristic society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's just, it's just really powerful to see, to see all, like to see the, the, all the kind of like cultural tropes played out in, yeah. in a science fiction world where you, I mean, and, and they're just like the idea of, for me as a science fiction fan, um, you know, like tribalism in general is so, so sort of the time. This is the time of tribalism in our society, and to see the African tribalism tropes and, and motifs expressed yes. through yes. science fiction is so cool, and it's like it's never been done, and uh, you know, in any kind of major mass media, you know, thing. It's just so cool. I really hope that it inspires this hope that individuals will create around them environments in which is ungentrifiable you know what I'm saying? where it's right, like yeah. there's a sense of pride where it's like you know what blight can't come here yeah, you know yeah. like and it, that transcends the message i'm saying transcends race this mm-hmm. this is your this is community you know because you picture where we're so proud of our community that we don't let them come for us yeah we yeah. you know we just we continue to just uphold and keep uh, a level of peace that we fought for you know and, and that we we want so well, thank right. you for bringing that up. That brings out the personality side. I guess maybe they don't yeah. get a chance to see from from me on this podcast. So yeah, yeah I think I think we people like the personality side, so we got to bring that yeah. in. Yeah, we do. Let's we do. do some more. So today we've got a good show for them. Uh, we we went out and we've got two really good guests. But today's show central focus is about Nashville. Yeah. So these guests are out of Nashville. Kind of fill us in on who we have. Um, we have we have two folks. We have Marie Bao and Tiffany. Capehart, and they both live in Nashville, Tennessee. Nashville um, 
is a rapidly growing mid-sized U.S. city. It's been called an it city by the New York Times. Um, boosters in that community have called it the new southern metropolis. In 2016, according to the American Community Survey, there was 100 people moving there a day. Uh, and as a result, the growth in the inner city has been tremendous. There's been a tremendous amount of demolition and new construction. In 2016, there was a thousand residential demolition permits that were executed and one or more units of new housing replaced all those. And as a result, there's been massive gentrification and massive displacement. Some neighborhoods have lost 50% of their African-American population. Um, others, um, we're talking about areas like Germantown, Salemtown, Buena Vista, Hope Garden, um, have seen 20 to you know, 30% of their black populations um, decline or move on. And so it's been a real focus for gentrification conversation around the country. All right. So how did uh, Priced Out get involved with Nashville? Well, students at Tennessee State University, a historically black college, actually approached us because they wanted to show our first film, Northeast Passage, as part of their Black History Month celebrations. And we thought that that was just amazing. It was just a, no one's ever asked us to to organize or help with the screening of, of Northeast Passage. And it's, it's been a film that we, you know, largely haven't thought about so much um, in, in recent in recent days. All right. So this first guest is one of the uh, people who helped organize it. Uh, you want to go ahead and introduce her? Yeah, Marie Bao is a master's student at the College of Public Service. And she's a Nashville resident. And we really just wanted to talk to her about what resonated with that film with her. That film is really about the very early stages of gentrification where crime is really the central focus of people's concern and new investment in, is seen as a good thing. It's seen as, you know, new people moving back into the neighborhood um, and that these new businesses and new residents are also helping to reduce crime. So it's a very gritty film. It's kind of, it's pretty real. And, um, and so we asked her, you know, why is this relevant to Nashville? We're here uh, with Marie Baum, who's a master's candidate at Tennessee State University's College of Public Service, and and she's the one that that basically is hosting and organizing the screening of Northeast Passage here in Nashville. Thanks so much for um, putting the show on. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, Marie? Uh, sure. Um, I'm originally from a small town uh, in Alabama called Decatur. Uh, I got accepted into Tennessee State University undergraduate school in 2003, which brought me here to Nashville. I graduated there in 2008, and then I was in the workforce for about eight years. And then I had an opportunity to go back to school and pursue an uh, advanced degree to get a master's uh, through the state of Tennessee, where I currently work. So uh, I've been in the MPA program since the fall of 2016, and I'm almost done. Yeah, and that, that's pretty much it. I'm just looking forward to get finishing the program and then uh, using my master's degree to, for better use. Well, now, um, you're going to show our first film about gentrification, which is called Northeast right. Passage. And we don't often get requests for that. You know, we often get requests for Priced Out, which is about Portland today. But, you know, Northeast Passage is very interesting because it's about 20 years ago what, what 
uh, these yeah. neighborhoods were like. What struck you about about this film, and why did you want to show it at uh, your school? Uh, well, what struck me about the film and just wanted to show show it is uh, pretty much Nashville isn't to the point where Portland is now, but I do see kind of like a little bit after where Portland was 15 years ago. So that's where I saw the similarity uh, with um, with Northeast Passage. Uh, when I first came here, you know, the school, like I stand on campus, but the neighborhood surrounding the school, I could see there was a lot of changes there. And, you know, growing up and working in Nashville and getting to know people through uh, my job and things of that nature, I saw that, you know, certain neighborhoods were talked about as, oh, that's not good, or they used to be bad, but now since people, the demographics in the neighborhood change, the neighborhoods are getting a little better. So I thought, well, trying to find a film that kind of showcased that, you know, a city used to be at that point, but now it changed to where the demographics are changing and the neighborhoods changing at a pace that people may not like or are able to embrace change. I felt like that best suited where Nashville is right now. Yeah, well, what we see in, in Northeast Passage is that neighbors in these neighborhoods are, are concerned with crime, they're concerned with things like abandoned houses, that there's no businesses or stores in their neighborhood anymore. You know, all, mm -hmm. all the capital has, has evaporated. Um, and initially, folks in the neighborhood see the the new white residents and the new investment as as a good thing. Um, are there is it parallel to what's going on in Nashville? Do some people see an upside and, and welcome the new investment? Uh, it, it depends on the neighborhood. For example, East Nashville, East, I see parts of it where, you know, some of it, you see the new development, you see the new stores, you see the new type of unique type of uh, places for that neighborhood. Uh, but then you also see public housing there as well. So it's kind of like, kind of like the clashing of like the public housing with these new residents coming in, that come in and like rebuild houses, try to revitalize the neighborhood. So you got the new and the old trying to come together in some organic way. And some places that, they pretty much have their own culture and other places is kind of, they feel like they're being, you know, being pushed out, inadvertently being pushed out. And East Nashville is where kind of the hipsters have, have colonized. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's where I see most of the, most of the hipsters in uh, very unique places. Um, I know there's like, like small businesses there, a lot of uh, vegan restaurants, um, small boutique stores and things like that uh, develop along in, um, along in East Nashville. Now, do you know, do you know people or African-American folks or people who've been in Nashville for a long time um, who are like, oh, well, great, new restaurants, I can go to these restaurants or they go to the store or there's, there's nightlife now. Do, they, do you see people taking advantage of some of these changes? Um, it's kind of like a, a mixed review. Um, I actually have an aunt that lives in that, in the East Nashville area. But she's in the neighborhood where, you know, there's like older established homes being mixed in with newer homes. Um, so I see that part where it's kind of like staying the same, like that quiet neighborhood vibe. And then you go to a different spot. There's a spot in uh, East Nashville called Five Points where it's kind of like the hub of like the entertainment and nightlife there. But uh, I don't see a lot of. Well, I haven't seen it because um, actually I used to work at a little small restaurant in East Nashville. Not quite sure if it's there anymore, but uh, with the clientele that came in, uh, I see, you know, the people who lived near the restaurant, 
did take advantage of it, but the people who were in a different part of East Nashville didn't really take advantage of it. Now, uh, we also see a neighborhood Edge Hill where um, <laughs> where there's a lot of development going on. Um, there's been a big drop in the African-American population, about 50% over the last couple of years, according to yeah. the American Community Survey um, in the Tennessean. And so there, there's a lot of, of development, people buying up houses and knocking them down, mm-hmm. putting up big ones. Do you know of people who, who are selling their homes and, you know, making uh, a profit who are, you know, getting a benefit from the marketplace? Well, from what I've heard of the people who sold their homes in that jail, they were given enough of the fair market value of the home. But if they go out and try to purchase a house somewhere else in Nashville, they found it pretty difficult to find a house that they type of house that they were accustomed to and the price range of the house that they were sold. Um, there, I think there is like one housing development that a friend of mine is currently staying in. Um, is things like public housing in Itch Hill, but it's like you see the public housing there, and then you see all these new condos and um, like homes that may or may not be for sale uh, in that area as well. But the thing about Itch Hill is, uh, you know, anywhere in that area, you get a view of the downtown skyline, which is why it's so, which is such a desirable place to live and be, because you could just look out your window and see like the national skyline with the Batman building. It's like you're overseeing the city and it's it's just a really beautiful view from that location, which is why it's so, so, uh, so in demand right now. But you do have older residents who love where they are and see, um, I think the Tennessee, when they were running their series on uh, on the gentrification in Nashville, this woman who has been a longtime Hill resident, um, you know, had to put a sign in front of her door saying her house is not for sale. But she talked about how, you know, people come to her and be like, are you going to sell your house? And she's like, no, I've been here. I'm not going to go anywhere. This house is mine. And, you know, and then I think the camera pans over. And you see all these high rises being built up in front of her house where she is just pretty much blocking her view of the Nashville skyline, which, uh, yeah, I. Funny, I'm smiling because we heard the like the exact same story from one of the residents yeah. that we interviewed here in Portland, um, mm-hmm. a, a gentleman who was who's lived in, in the same house since 1954. He's yeah. a decorated police officer and retired now. And he's like, people just knock on my door and asked to buy the house or if I'm selling it. And it mm-hmm. for him, it's very insulting. He finds it very disrespectful. Um, and we, we also see in this Tennessean series um, by Mike Riker uh, that uh, one woman he interviews, Janice Key, says the, the new residents um, sort of disregard or don't really interact with the existing residents. The way it's described is... Uh, quote, they, they walk tiny, fluffy white dogs. Uh, they ride on bikes uh, on streets that used to be filled with cars and they aren't friendly uh, as as expected, as, as you would expect. And, um, and Janice Key says she doesn't know if that's a color issue or not. That's exactly what we hear about <laughs> from residents here. Is that what you're seeing? Is that what you're hearing from other folks? Is, what's, your, uh, what's your view? Yes, uh, that that's pretty much what I'm uh, seeing and hearing. When I commute to work, uh, I work like right smack dab in the heart of uh, downtown Nashville. 
and pretty much surrounding downtown Nashville, there's a lot of housing development there, like the with the condos, which they're claimed to be affordable at the rate starting at two thousand dollars a month. That's supposed to be affordable, uh, you know, as a, as state employee, that that's not even feasible, uh, for you know, to consider. So. Um, but I do see if I, you know, go out and take a walk on my lunch break, I do see the the people walking around with their white fluffy dogs uh, <laughs> around downtown Nashville. And I see I see the joggers in the morning uh, while I go into work. But, you know, the and also with uh, with downtown Nashville, there's also the uh, the central hub for the public transportation. It's also there, too. Uh, and. Sometimes if I'm just uh, out taking a walk during my break, I do see there's pretty much, you know, you see the see a jogger that lives around the downtown area and the people waiting for buses at the bus stop. It's pretty much like no interaction. It's like this, for lack of a better term, air superiority um, between between the, those groups. So I, I, I do see where, you know, new people will come into a neighborhood but there's no inaction with the pre-existing residents there. And yeah, I, I, it may be a color issue. It may not be a color issue. You know, I really can't assume that. Uh, but you know, it's a, we're all a product of the environment we grew up in. So the way we interact with other people uh, will be a result of that. But I, I do see that where, you know, you see people walking in fluffy dogs, encountering people who have to wait for a bus. Uh, so yeah, that there is some truth to that. That that's the number one complaint we hear that is that new residents um, come in and act like they own the place um, and mm-hmm. and don't don't observe the customs. Even if they're from you know myself, I'm from New Jersey. I, I moved into into this community here, and I have a kind of a New York City mentality. I don't look people in the eye or say hello. Right. But that's really the expectation of this neighborhood and, and Portland in general. It used to be, you know, a very kind of southern um, small town mentality here in this neighborhood and around, you know, and around Portland too. People say, hi, how are you? Just total strangers. And the, the new residents, for one reason or another, don't observe that. And I, it, it really seems like it is on the new residents to find out what the customs are and to observe them. You know, it seems like you move yeah. into a community you, you would at least do that. Right. You know, when in Rome. So what do you think new residents should know um, if they move into these neighborhoods? What do you, what's your message to, to folks who are, who are moving or buying homes or developing, you know, homes? Well, um, my message would be is to, you know, get to know the neighborhood because, you know, each neighborhood has its own uniqueness and culture. And even, you know, it's, always with anything, you know, look before you buy, because the way you are, you know, may not be, you may not, you know, be a good fit for that neighborhood. It's like anything, you know, looking for a mate, looking for a job, you have to find something that fits you. Uh, so instead of just going in, you know, to a neighborhood saying, oh, this is a nice house, I'll, you know, I'll buy it, you know, just look, look what's around there. Um, pretty much the neighborhood I'm renting in now is pretty much the neighborhood I want to be in, you know, it's far enough from downtown, you know, just a nice little suburb area. So, you know, I realized that I just the place I want to be in, but because I did, you know, research, I lived in other uh, areas of Nashville and I pretty much settled into this uh, suburban area I'm in now. 
So like with anything, finding a car, finding a job, finding a mate, just do your research. What is it that, uh, going back to Northeast Passage, um, you know, that film's really about this, you know, this early stage of gentrification, um, when there still is, um, in, in these neighborhoods in Portland, there was still a black majority community here. And, and you know, people weren't really aware of gentrification as an issue. It seems like people in Nashville are perhaps more aware uh, of that there's a downside to this. Um, Nikki, though, was very, you know, our, the main focus of the film, Nikki Williams, was, was very hopeful that the gentrification would, be, would lift all boats. Um, what is it about her, if anything, that, that resonated with you? Uh, I think what resonated with, uh, with Nikki for me the most was, you know, she's a mother just trying to provide a better life for her child. And me being a mother myself, you know, that's what I'm, you know, trying to do, just trying to find like a safe, healthy environment, you know, for my child to live in and grow. And, uh, there was a part in the documentary where she was like, I just want to send her away. So she wanted to be around this. And, I was like, yeah, you know, because that's, that's what any parent would want for their child is to have a better life and make sure that, you know, feel like I just feel like it's the job that with any parent is to make sure that their children are set up for a better life than they had. Uh, you know, like my mom did for me and which is what I want to do for my job, which is pretty much uh, why she, well, you know, works so hard to get all the drug houses out and was at all the meetings with the CD, CDC and BNA and, you know, trying to make those people who were in charge of the housing, uh, the housing in the area, made them accountable, accountable for the people who live there. Uh, you know, if people were there doing drugs and things like that, they shouldn't be there. That's not, there wasn't a good environment for the neighborhood and she knew there wasn't a good environment for her daughter to be in. And uh, for her to receive even threats about, you know, she's just trying to have a clean neighborhood for her daughter, but she's getting death threats and being threatened to be beat up because she's snitching so to speak on people who are doing illegal activity which that that's what resonated the most with me with the focus of northeast patches was nikki and her you know stepping up and do some making sure that you know if she's gonna live there and uh you know she bought her a house and she was also concerned about you know the focus on renting a home instead of owning a home uh i think something to the fact that she stated that you know, you feel like people who own their homes, you know, have a sense of pride in their community if they own their home, because they have a stake in that community when they own a home. If they're renting, you know, they could they could care less. They're just there. And if they don't if they don't like it, they wouldn't care, they don't care about the community they're being in. Which which is which is a good point because if if you own a home, you have a stake in that community and how that community is operated. But if you're renting, it's like a temporary situation. It's, it's not permanent. Like there's no there's no attachment there if you're renting and, and all these rentals started popping up. Yeah, and, and that's, um, I mean, is that a struggle with, you know, you have neighborhoods that are still, you know, dealing with crime uh, on the street, and then you have um, you have people who want to see improvements happen. Um, you feel like there's an active um, an active community in Nashville that's you know advocating for their neighborhoods. Uh, there is it, it. It depends on the neighborhood. I know there's there's an older 
um, predominantly black neighborhood called Bordeaux, um, where some gentrification has occurred, where, you know, developers are trying to go in and try to make changes. And people in that community are like, wait a minute, we've been here for years. You know, you can't just come barge in, come and barge in and change things in our community. So I do see, you know, there are there is some, uh, you know, organizations uh, that are, you know, pretty much, pretty much neighborhood based. They are, you know, combating the people who want to come in and just change the whole neighborhood without even consulting the people that already live there. Do you think that that you were saying that, you know, homeowners versus renters, um, do you think home ownership does make a difference in a community? And that, uh, yeah, yeah, I think being being a homeowner, being a homeowner, it definitely does make a difference uh, because you know you you know you have you have those keys to your to that house. You know you're responsible for that upkeep for that maintenance of the house. You know you have uh you know you want to live in a nice safe place because you're going to be there for a while because you you made an investment in a home. With renting, you know, it may be temporary, maybe, you know, permanent, you know, it may be from month to month. Uh, you don't, you know, you, you don't know for sure because, you know, once that you just sign a lease agreement, you're not signing, you know, a mortgage or a deed, you know, it, you know, this with the lease, you know, it's yours temporarily. It doesn't feel like a home, but with, you know, if you get a deed, if you sign off, you know, on a home loan, you know, and given those keys, you know, that meet that has a deeper meaning, that's a deeper significance. Uh, you know, this is like, you know, being part of the American dream, like this little bit, you know, this little bit, this is mine. This is what I work for. And so, yeah, home ownership, I feel like it needs to be emphasized more than renting. Do you think that, um, cause in Northeast Passage, there's almost like two stories going on which is Nikki's fight against drug houses in her neighborhood. And then the, the larger conversation about gentrification and how it brings improvements to the neighborhood, but at a cost. And Nikki sort of joins up with her gentrifying neighbors to, to fight an affordable housing complex. So it's, it's, yeah. a very, it's a very complicated story that doesn't really have any easy answers. And... And so what do you think the message that people should, is that should they, what message should people take away from Nikki's story in Northeast Passage? Uh, I know for one thing, you know, like if you, you know, just, just take a stand. I know like she, that, that's really brave. Like, you know, reporting, like she had the police on speed down reporting suspicious activity. Cause you know, if, if you're just complacent, and that type of thing happening, that's not good for the entire neighborhood. So pretty much, you know, taking a stand and, and what you believe in, making sure that, you know, it could be one person in a community can really make an impact uh, on their part. And also with, um, I just feel like there should be more resources and support to, to guide to home ownership. And because with affordable housing in some uh you know, some aspect is just a temporary fix to a long-term issue. Um, yeah, you have this, you know, you have you have a place to stay that you're renting, but the main goal should be owning a home. Like what is done in the process, like, okay, we're, we're providing rentals to low-income people, but what's being done in, in the process to help those low-income people be on a path to home ownership? Is it, 
it may be, you know, just the barriers of why these people are, are low income. Uh, you know, it could be like education. They have a background, something in background that keeps them from getting a higher pay or higher paying job. Like, you know, addressing those issues to, you know, to their family. Uh, so that way they can be on the path to home ownership uh, instead of pretty much putting a bandaid on a long term issue is like, how can we give low income people, low income households, you know, a place to live instead of just rent, you know, giving them a low rate rent. And another thing we see in that in Northeast Passage is at that early stage of of white wealthier whites moving into the neighborhood, there was really working together that that all the neighbors kind of came together around the issue of, of trying to make it safe on the streets and and close down drug houses. Um, is that another lesson or is that is that something that that is happening? You feel in Nashville that new residents are moving in or working with the community or is there kind of just a disconnection? Uh, I do see a disconnect because uh, I see, well, with Nashville being the it city right now, you know, you got people from, you know, coming from all over and it, the population is just growing in exponential rate. So the, you know, initially if, if you come to new, if you move to a new place, you're just t- trying to find shelter. That's it. Uh, not sure you know, not getting to know their neighborhood really well. So there may be a disconnect there because you have these different uh, cultures, you know, coming together in different neighborhoods. And, uh, you know, with, you know, me being a millennial, we just don't like the, like a face-to-face conversation. Like that, 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 that'll be foreign uh, to some people. <laughs> so, uh, you know, connect your phone. And, and I think it might be, it's just a, like cultural generational disconnect how some some people are like you know are used to having face to face conversations. Other people are like, well, send me an email or text me. So it it may be another uh, aspect to that. So you know you got those these different mixes of people living in the same area. It's not that oh I don't like you because you look different from me. It's like oh I don't want I don't know you. I may not want to get to know you. So that's probably where the disconnect lies. So a couple of different reasons why people might not be neighborly yeah. could be coming from a bigger city like me, could be just a millennial who feels uncomfortable talking to people in real real life, um, yeah. or could be racial, um, could or class. Um, yeah. Well, what would you do if you were if you were mayor of Nashville right now? What would you do about this issue? <laughs> okay. Uh, taking that the, this whole uh, scandal broke out at the beginning of the month. Uh, yeah, that, 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 there might be a totally different, uh, show altogether. Yeah, let's, uh, let's, let's say that you're, you're, you're yeah. a scandal-free, <laughs> scandal-free. Mayor, mayor of Nashville. Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, I think if, if I were a mayor, uh, I think, you know, for the whole, um, agenda with housing, uh, I would push or try to find ways of, uh, you know, making home ownership accessible and affordable to people, not just affordable housing, but uh, affordable home ownership. Yeah, I think uh, last year I tried, I went through the whole process, went through the whole home buyer education program, got my certificate. Like, yeah, you know how to, you know, the process of buying a home, but when it actually went, you know, got time for me to actually try to find somewhere, uh, they're like, oh, you know, this, you know, I had all these, things against me. I think the biggest one was uh, student loans. Like I had student loan debt, which 
you know, preventing me from even getting a loan uh, large enough to even be considered to buy a home. So I think that would be like my main agenda regarding the housing issue is like what can be done to make home ownership accessible and affordable to all Nashvilleians, not just those who make the cut on certain criteria. Uh, well, uh, February 20th, we'll be showing the uh, film Northeast Passage at Tennessee State University, uh, Avon Williams campus that is downtown, uh, room 354. You can make a reservation through Eventbrite. Awesome. Thanks so much for, for hosting this and for bringing the film to Nashville. Uh, Marie, really appreciate it. And um, yeah, let's stay in touch. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Bye. All right. And we're back. I really enjoyed your interview with Marie. Uh, what was one of your favorite takeaways before we go to the next interview that you, you could really highlight about what Marie uh, pointed out? Well, I think, you know, one of the things that Marie was saying is that, like we see with Portland, the new folks who are moving in are not necessarily engaging with the community um, that is currently there. But what she liked about the first film was seeing neighbors get together and work on the most pressing problems of the neighborhood, which in, in Northeast Passage was crime. But what those problems are in, in your neighborhood may, may be different. But the most important thing that I think she said was, you know, she related to Nikki's sort of strength of character her drive to improve her neighborhood and improve her, improve her, the life of her daughter and herself, and that she was able to to work with a community that came together to do that. And I think that's really um, what struck her, and is a you know a model of how neighborhoods should all be operating. All right. So now we got one more guest uh, for him today, and, and explain to us what Mrs. Capehart does. So Tiffany Capehart is a realtor, but she's also an urban planner, a city planner. She comes from a city planning background. So she sells properties and consults with developers in Nashville. So she brings a, and she's also an African-American woman. She um, brings a unique perspective because she's obviously someone who's capitalizing on the growth, but she also cares very deeply about her community. She wants to see the city of Nashville become, you know, a vibrant community and she accepts that it's going to be a growing community so she has a she has a great point of view that isn't simply looking at it from um from like a social justice framework she has a little bit of a of a, a different lens um, but that is is a valid part of this conversation all right so let's get into your interview with uh with miss capehart Hi, folks. Um, we're here now with Tiffany Caphart, who is a realtor and land use consultant in Nashville. And she's also a panelist for the discussion after the screening of Northeast Passage coming up here at Tennessee State University. Tiffany, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what, what you do there in Nashville? Sure. In Nashville, I am a um, person farm foremost an, um, an urban planner. That's really the hat that I lead with. That's my study and background. I, I graduated from Tennessee State University 
a historically black college and university in Nashville, Tennessee, and more specifically in North Nashville, and did architecture there, and then got a master's in urban planning, and um, then really started my career as an urban planner here in Nashville, working for the city of Nashville, and did that for about eight years, and have done some a lot of policy work in different parts of Nashville, and worked on a lot of community engagement efforts, specifically around the Nashville's comprehensive plan update, which is still around all issues dealing with urban growth. Now, there has been a lot of development in Nashville in recent years. You know, from our end, a lot of reporting going on. In 2016, there was a uh, 100 new people moving to Nashville a day. Um, there's been an explosion in redevelopment, over a thousand residential demolition permits. Also in, in 2016, that's three, three houses demolished every day. Uh, with one or more units planned to replace um, each one of those demolished units. So a lot of growth happening in the central city. Can you kind of walk us through, like, how did Nashville get there? I'm assuming it's sort of the classic story we see in other cities where downtown got revitalized and then growth began to move into the adjacent neighborhoods to downtown. You know, there were several things that happened. I think there was a historic tornado that, ripped through parts of what's called East Nashville that was very traditional neighborhoods, very walkable, um, historic housing. And so the idea of revitalizing those those neighborhoods really came to be. And so there was this, when I talk about neighborhoods and the places that people see as being the, the hot places to be, it took a long time for those neighborhoods to really become what they are today. And, and so now, you know, those neighborhoods have become destination places. And Nashville's a place where there is not, um, you know, it's very suburban. It was it was more so built out during the time period where we were building more suburban style development. So a lot of you have a what we call a hub and spoke system where you've got um, downtown, you know, all roads lead to downtown kind of thing. And um, so we have these pikes and these pikes lead you out to more suburban areas. And so a lot of our development pattern is very suburban and spread out. So you really don't have very many neighborhoods that have that very compact, traditional, walkable fabric and um, that are close to downtown. And so the ones that do, there's high demand for them. You know, if you think about very developed cities like Chicago and New York. And you can find that development pattern in a lot of different places. But here in Nashville, it's a very unique development pattern that exists in close proximity to downtown. So the demand for those places is very high and there's not very much of it, (laughs) you know. And so anytime that you have high demand and low supply, you know, you get increased in prices. and, And so that's really what we're seeing. And then, you know, just Nashville, like many other cities, it, it was this trend of, you know, a trend of, of, of buyers and or, you know, residents wanting to, you know, live closer to where they work and, and play, you know. Um, people were of the mindset of they didn't want to continue to commute and drive in a car. And so like many other downtowns, we saw where, um, you know, our administration would begin to putting monies into downtown. We had the Titan Stadium built and then um, Nashville, you know, the Nashville Predator Stadium and, and those types. And then the, there was the downtown library. There was a big community engagement uh, process around one of the um, uh, major connectors, um, roadway connectors between 
East Nashville and downtown that kind of got people energized about planning again. So there was this real um, energy put into um, improving downtown Nashville. And I think it radiated from that. Um, and so we began to develop our downtown and then the neighborhoods around downtown began to get that same energy because um, people wanted to be close to that. So um, so that's, that's, that's kind of how we got to the point where we are. It was a combination of, you know, things that were happening locally, but then, you know, trends that are happening all in cities all over. You know, there was a New York Times article, I, I believe it was New York Times, but it had the headline of, you know, Nashville, the it city. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> and, um, and so that probably could have, that was probably a, a blessing and a curse <laughs> for some people yeah. because, you know, now you've got people that are flocking here because, um, you know, if you're coming from Chicago or, or you know, a larger market, let's say, and, um, you know, you can find, you know, a, I don't know, a 2,500 square foot house or 1,800 square foot house for under $400,000. That's a bargain if you're coming from a larger market where mm-hmm. you know, homes are in the, you know, billion price point, right? Oh, yeah, we were the New York Times <laughs> for a while. They just love you and then throw you the curb. I know. <laughs> yeah, and, then, and then leave you and leave, and leave you with all the problems of, of being popular, right? So, right? Yeah, so um, so that's that's what happened. And so we had a lot of folks that flocked here and, um, and you know, were willing to pay those prices for housing. And, um, and so I think it was just, a, just that combination just really – lit our market on fire um and um yeah and then caused you know prices to um to go up like they did now do you still see um issues there in the inner city with crime and and community you know abandonment are these two forces of like super high housing prices and and red hot development sort of rubbing up right against communities that are still sort of grappling with crime and disinvestment at the same time? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, um, there's still areas that um, are still, I guess, uh, you know, making that turn. I hate to use the word, I know we're going to be talking about gentrification, but that that has become such a loaded term. I try to be careful in terms of how I use it. Um, but there are neighborhoods that have not quite made the entire term yet, you know, turn. So, um you know, there's places where, you know, you might have a couple of new builds or new construction houses on a street next to, you know, houses that, you know, are existing and may need some renovation. Whereas in other parts of town, I've seen whole blocks, I mean, literally, you know, whole blocks of new construction infill housing, you know. Um, what is also has happened is, you know, um, when it comes to housing affordability, there has been a really big tension between, um, you know, our suburban areas and urban areas and our suburban areas feeling like they're getting the blunt of, you know, people who have been displaced or have to move to find more affordable housing. So when you talk about the placement of affordable housing, you know, you often have to look at where can you find, where can you get it to make, where, where, where can you make it work? And that's often places where the land costs are lower. And um, that that at one point was our suburbs. I don't even think it's our suburbs anymore. 
um, I think that's going to also become our outlying counties, you know, places adjacent to Nashville, Davidson County, Metro. So we're seeing where, you know, affordability is being pushed further and further out from the city. Now, the folks who are moving into those central neighborhoods um, in East Nashville and West Nashville, um, Edge Hill, um, gets talked about a lot. Um, who are the folks who are moving in, who are paying these, these much higher prices for, for homes? Um, where are they coming from and, and what do they do? I, I have to say, you know, my, the buyers are the real estate agents. The buyers that I primarily work with are, to be quite honest, are the folks that are in that 250 to 300,000 price point. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those folks are just young professionals who are moving up in housing. So say, for instance, you came out of college and you bought, um, you know, a small townhouse or condo. Um, and since then you've married and had children. So now you need to move up in housing. So they're, you know, buying their first kind of big house right so that's that's that buyer or you know and then in some cases people are moving up into that that level of housing um i have seen i I do work a lot with the developers and investors and um definitely the the short-term rental market has influenced um has influenced that is the higher price point properties as well so you know folks are buying you know beautiful uh, condos and townhouses close to downtown and using them for, you know, uh, short-term rental, mm. which everybody knows Airbnb. Airbnb. Yeah. Um, so there's, so there's a lot of that and, and there's some, uh, legislation that, that just passed that's going to, I think, slow that down, <laughs> which you may hear about at, uh, at the, uh, panel discussion, but, um, but then I've also seen an influx of um, these kind of large um, investment companies that are coming in and buying housing, um, higher end housing for rental. So a lot of buyers are competing not only against cash, like, you know, like an actual local cash investor, but you're competing against these, these companies that, you know, provide, you know, rentals. So um, that rental market has been quite active as well so and when it is new people new homeowners who who come in and buy a house um or a condo and with the intention to live there uh, in these neighborhoods these central neighborhoods where we're seeing a big demographic shift um germantown salem town one of it the hope garden um are, are the are the buyers as far as you know sort of just really focused on the house itself or are they interested and engaged with the community that the house sits in? Like, what is their awareness of that? And what is your sense of their interest in engaging with that community? Or are they kind of more, a little bit more speculative buyers saying, oh, this neighborhood is going to be great someday, kind of a buyer? I think it's a little bit of both. I remember talking with residents who had once lived in South South neighborhood, mm-hmm. which has completely gentrified. Um, and, and, and the reason why I can say that is because I've seen the numbers and that's something we'll talk about at, at the panel, but you really have to look at the data behind gentrification. What's the population shift? What's the income changes? What's the educational shift? And, you know, and like that, um, in my opinion, to really be able to say gentrification happened. Mm-hmm. And so in this neighborhood it has. And I remember 
someone who moved to another <laughs> popular neighborhood, right? They said, well, we left Club South because it was losing that diversity and that quirkiness that we love so much. And so some people are moving into these neighborhoods because they do like the, the diversity that it offers and, um, you know, that gritty, you know, urban city life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I also, you know, I'm, I'm an African-American myself, black woman planner. Um, so some, a lot of my clientele are black, or, you know, black professionals. And um, I have quite a few that want to move back into the North Nashville community, which is historically and predominantly black, and is centered around the Tennessee State University, um, Historic Fifth University, and Historic Harry University. And um, they want to be back in that neighborhood. And um, so there's a there. I think there is there's definitely that part, right? Mm-hmm. Um, people want that 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 uniqueness um at the same time even those people still know that these neighborhoods as our city continues to grow these are places where values hopefully will either remain steady or continue to grow so you know i think any you know we (laughs) i was watching a ted talk the other day um and the speaker said, sometimes, you know, we have to get comfortable with our inner capitalist, <laughs> you know, so we all want to, you know, do well and invest in neighborhoods. But at the same time, you know, this, these are people's investments and they do want them to grow, you know. So I think there's a little bit of both of that. And, you know, when you talk about gentrification and displacement, I think it's the combination of that that makes for easier transition. Because when you have someone that's just coming in with the speculation cap on, they are less likely to become part of the neighborhood and help with issues that still need to be dealt with, like crime and litter and, you know, um, disinvestment and like that. But the people that I have worked with and have sold to, um, when I've listed properties in these neighborhoods, they are wanting to become part of the neighborhood that they are moving into. That's what I've experienced. And is there anything else um, you think people should know? People listening to to this podcast about you know what's going what's going on in Nashville, where you guys um, see your future headed? Sure, I think you know Nashville is a place, um, and, and and let me just say you know I do my husband is is from here as well, and um, and so I. Re- I respect um, people who are from here and I respect their, um, I guess, um, nervousness about what is going to, how Nashville is going to look and grow in the future. And I, I will say Nashville is a place where it was a big city with a small town feel, you know, um, <laughs> and now we are going through the growing pains of, you know, we're scaling up. I mean, if you think about a, a city, because a city very much so is still a, a business, right? Um, you got to pay for services and you got to <laughs> pay for savvy. You got to keep mm-hmm. it going. And so it's scaling up. And then, and then sometimes when you scale up, you, you have 
issues that you run into. And that's where we are as a city. You know, we are growing and we're grappling with all of these things that happen when you grow. You know, how do we better serve our people through transit and how do we make sure that housing remains affordable so people will want to continue to come here to live, right? Um, you know, how do we, uh, you know, just make sure the growth is equitable. But I think, you know, the hard thing is just if, if we keep trying to hang on to what was the past, then we will never be able to fully really think through how to address these things moving forward to the future. So I would just encourage, you know, everyone to, you know, you want to honor the past, but, you know, we have to come to the realization that Nashville is a large growing city. And like I said at the beginning, um, we are even growing outside of our, outside of our borders of Davidson County, you know, outlying counties are becoming places where people are living, but they work in Nashville. You know, so, you know, we just have to think about that and really put our heads together and come up with solutions. Um, and I know that there are people who are our decision makers who they're interested in solutions. I work with developers and investors who, you know, while I think developers, are, uh, you know, can be off-putting to neighborhood people, um, there are developers and I've worked with them who really do care about the city and because they live here too you know <laughs> so they want to do the right thing and so um so yes i just think it's about everybody working together to you know come up with 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 solutions and not just arguing about change we know it's changing so what are we going to do about it yeah well thank you so much tiffany i really appreciate you taking the time and I hope you have a great screening and discussion on February 20th. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. All right. Cheers. All right. Once again, you've done it again. It's another great interview. I find myself saying that and, and I'm not really, I'm not, I'm not just laying it on thick. I really did like, like that interview with Mrs. Capehart. How, how do you feel uh, the future of Nashville is going to shape, uh, shape out? Uh, yeah. Where's it headed from here? Yeah. I, I think it is a good question. I'm not sure anybody really that we've talked to has put their finger on where the community is going. I think the most important place to go from here is for folks to build awareness of the downsides of the growth that they're experiencing. It seems like people are starting to get their heads around it, starting to see that there's there's going to be long-term problems with people who are displaced and that you know wealth creation in a neighborhood doesn't necessarily trickle down uh, in fact it often doesn't so first stage is really just getting people aware of what the problems may be and I think that's hopefully what Nashville is doing now and I hope that that is what this event on February 20th at Tennessee State University downtown campus uh, will help to do I hope there'll be more conversation about this issue because um, where Nashville what Nashville decides to do about the problems is going to be based on how many people are participating in the conversation. All right. So just in case uh, you're watching this and it's too late for you to go join them on February 20th, always check the Priced Out uh, website for other screenings around the country, uh, more than just the Portland area. So what's the Priced Out website? They can go to 
PricedOutMovie.com, and they should certainly follow us on Facebook, and they should subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and YouTube. Please follow us, and we'll have more updates, both on Priced Out, the documentary, but also about gentrification happening in different communities around the country. All right. Once again, did a great job with the interviews. Appreciate you going out and bringing credibility to Priced Out, the podcast. All right. We'll All right. see you next time. And next time we're going to be talking about my hometown. That's right. Of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Or I won't say hometown, but it's home to me. Just not my original home. It's but your old stomping ground. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. So, All right. See you next, next time. See you next time.